0: Thank you. Thank you, Phil, for those lovely words of introduction. Our story begins with the Big Bang. This uh, sets a chain of events in motion that gives us elementary particles, then more complex particles like atoms, which form stars and planets uh, like our own, on which life evolves, which brings us to the recent past when this whole process results in the universe generating a way of looking at itself. Physicists. Now, by the end of World War II, physicists were in short supply in Europe. If they hadn't already fled during Hitler's rise to power, they were now actively being wooed away to the United States. So to counteract this brain drain, a coalition of countries forms the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or, to use its French acronym, CERN. And they get some land in a suburb of Geneva, on the border between Switzerland and France, where they set about smashing particles together and recreating the conditions that existed at the birth of the universe. And every year, CERN is host to thousands of scientists who come to run their experiments.
1: So fast forward to February 2019. A group of nine of us were invited to CERN as an elite group of hackers to recreate a different kind of experiment. We are there to recreate a piece of software that was first published 30 years ago. Now, given that goal, we have to answer some important questions first. What does this software look like or feel like? How does it work? How do you interact with it, and how does it behave? This software is so old that it doesn't even run on any of our machines. So we have a Next machine, especially shipped in from the local museum, and it's no ordinary machine either. This is one of the two Next machines that existed in CERN in the late 80s. So now we've got this machine that we can run this special software on. And by some fluke, the good people of the web have collected several different versions of uh, this software and published it up, up on GitHub. So we select the oldest version of the software that we can find, and we download it onto our machines, our laptops. And then we need to transfer it onto the next machine, except well, there's no USB drives. It doesn't exist. It hasn't been invented in the, uh, the late 80s. CD-ROMs and floppy disk drives, well, we don't have any of those media on our machines. Uh, The next machine has a bespoke Floptical drive, uh, but that didn't really work out, so uh, we're still stuck. So to transfer the software from our machines onto the next machine, we need to use the network.
0: In 1957, J.C.R. Licklider was the first person to publicly demonstrate the idea of time-sharing, linking one computer to another computer. Now, Six years later, he expanded on the idea in a memo that described an intergalactic computer network. By this time, he was working at ARPA, the Department of Defense's Advanced Research Project Agency, and they were very interested in the idea of linking computers together for very practical reasons. The Americas military communications had a top-down command- and-control structure, and that was a single point of failure: one preemptive strike, and it's game over. So the solution was to create a decentralized network of computers that used Paul Baran's brilliant idea of packet switching to move information around the network without any central authority. And this idea led to the creation of the ARPANET. Initially, it connected a few universities, and the ARPANET grew until it wasn't just computers at each endpoint, it was entire networks. It was turning into a network of networks, an internetwork, if you will, or internet for short. And in order for these networks to play nicely with one another, they needed to agree on using the same set of protocols for packet switching. Bob Kahn and Vint Cerf crafted the simplest possible set of low-level protocols, the Transmission Control Protocol and Internet Protocol, TCPIP. And TCPIP is deliberately dumb. It doesn't care about the contents of the packets of data being passed around the internet. So people are then free to create more task-specific protocols to sit on top of TCP/IP. There are protocols specifically for email, for example. Gopher is another example of a bespoke protocol. And there's the file transfer protocol, or FTP.
1: So back in the war room in 2019, we finally work out we can use FTP to get this software across. FTP is an arcane protocol, but we agree it can work across these two eras. We have to manually install FTP servers onto our laptops, Because FTP doesn't even ship with software today, because it's considered insecure. So now, we finally have the software installed on our next computer, and we're able to run this application. And we double-click this shady-looking part hand-drawn lightning bolt icon, and we wait. And once the software is finally running, we're able to see that it looks a bit like an ancient word processor. We can read and edit and open documents. There's some basic stylings with super heavy margins and some really weird kind of menu navigation in place. But there is something different about this software. This is more than a word processor. This documents, these documents,
0: they have links. TED NELSON is fond of coining neologisms. You can thank him for words like intertwingled, and teledildonics. He also coined the word hypertext in 1963. And it is defined by what it is not. Hypertext is text which is not constrained to be linear. Ever played a choose-your-own-adventure book? That is hypertext. You can jump from one point in a book to a different point that has its own unique identifier. Now, the idea of hypertext predates the word. In 1945, Vannevar Bush published a visionary article in the Atlantic Monthly called As We May Think. And in it, he imagines a mechanical device built into a desk that can summon reams of information stored on microfilm, allowing the user to create associative trails as they make connections between different concepts. He calls it the Memex. Also in 1945, a young American named Douglas Engelbart has been drafted into the Navy and is shipping out to the Pacific to fight against Japan. And literally as the ship is leaving the harbor, word comes through that the war is over. Now He still gets shipped out to the Philippines, but now he's spending his time in a hut, lounging around reading magazines. And that's how he comes to read Vannevar Bush's Memex article, which lodges in his brain. Douglas Engelbart decides to dedicate his life to building the computer equivalent of the Memex. And on December 9th, 1968, he unveils his online system, NLS, in a public demonstration. And not only does he have a working implementation of hypertext, he also shows collaborative real-time editing, windows, graphics. Oh, no, yeah, for, for this demo, he invents the mouse. It truly is the mother of all demos. And there were a number of other attempts at creating hypertext systems. In 1980, a young computer scientist named Tim Berners-Lee found himself working at CERN, where scientists were having a heck of a time just keeping track of information. So he created a system somewhat like Apple's HyperCard, but with clickable links. And he named it Inquire after a Victorian book of manners called Inquire Within Upon Everything. Now, Inquire didn't work out, but Tim Berners-Lee didn't give up on the problem of managing information at CERN. He thinks about all the work done before. There's Vannevar Bush's Memex, uh, Ted Nelson's Xanadu project, Douglas Engelbart's online system. See, a lot of these hypertext ideas really are similar to choose your own adventures, uh, jumping around from point to point within a book. But what if, instead of imagining a hypertext book, we could have a hypertext library? Then you could jump from one point in a book to a different point in a different book in a completely different part of the library. In other words, what if you took the world of hypertext and the world of networks and you smashed them together? On the 12th of March 1989, Tim Berners-Lee circulates the first draft of a document titled Information Management, a Proposal. The diagrams are incomprehensible, but his supervisor at CERN, Mike Sendall, sees the potential. He reads the proposal and he scrawls these words across the top, vague but exciting. Tim Berners-Lee gets to go ahead to spend some time on this project and he gets to budget for a nice shiny Next machine. And with the support of his colleague Robert Caillou, Berners-Lee sets about making his theoretical project a reality. And they kick around uh, a few ideas for the name. They thought of calling it The Mesh. They thought of calling it The Information Mine, Uh, But Tim rejected that. Um, he, He knew that whatever they called it, The words would be abbreviated to letters, and the information mine would have seemed very egotistical. So, even though it's only going to exist on one computer to begin with, and even though the letters of the abbreviation take longer to say than the words being abbreviated, they call it the World Wide Web. And as Robert Caio told us, they were thinking, we can always change it later. So Tim Berners-Lee brainstorms a new protocol for hypertext called the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, HTTP. He thinks about a format for hypertext called the Hypertext Markup Language, HTML. He comes up with an addressing scheme that uses unique document identifiers, UDIs, uh, later renamed to URIs, later renamed again to URLs. But he needs to put it all together into running code. And so Tim Berners-Lee sets about writing a piece of software.
1: Tim Berners-Lee's document at this stage 30 years ago is just a proposal. It's just theory. So he needs to build a prototype of to actually demonstrate how the World Wide Web would work. The next computer is a perfect breeding ground for rapid software development because the next operating system ships with a program called NSBuilder. NSBuilder is software to build software. And in fact, the NS, standing for Next Step, can be found in existing software today. You'll see it in NSText as references in the Safari documentation and Mac documentation. Tim Berners-Lee uses NSBuilder to create a working prototype of this software in just six weeks. And he called it World Wide Web. So we finally have the software working the way it ran 30 years ago. But our project is to replicate the browser so that you can come try it out and look at what web pages looked like 30 years ago in this browser. So we enter some of our blogs, htpsremysharp.com, HTTPS, adaptio.com, but HTTPS doesn't exist at this point in time. HTTP doesn't, HTTP 2 doesn't exist at this time. Uh, And HTTP 1.0 hadn't been invented at this point. So I made a proxy. I made a monster monster in the middle attack for every web request coming from this next machine. It would strip out all the SSL take the HTML, and pass it back over HTTP 0.9. And finally, we're able to see this. I'm going to open a web page, and we see junk. But as I'm scrolling down the page, you can see there's actually content that appears there. You can see the text from my blog post. It's readable. But there's a lot of HTML junk tags being spat out onto the screen.
0: These tags are probably very familiar to you. You recognize this language, right? Yeah, that's right. It's SGML. (laughs) SGML is the successor to GML, which supposedly stands for Generalized Markup Language, but that may well be a backronym. Uh, The format was created by... Goldfarb, Mosher, and Lori, G, M, and L. SGML is supposed to be short for Standard Generalized Markup Language. And a flavor of SGML was already being used at CERN when Tim Berners-Lee was working on his World Wide Web Project. So rather than create a whole new format from scratch, he repurposed what people were already familiar with. And this was his hypertext markup language, HTML. One thing he did add was a tag called A for Anchor. And its href attribute is short for hypertext reference. You plop a URL in there, you've got yourself a link. The hypertext community thought this was a terrible way to make links. See, they believed that two-way linking was vital. With two-way linking, the linked resource connects back to where the link originates. So if the linked resource moves, the link would stay intact. And that's not the case with the World Wide Web. If the linked resource moves, the link is broken. Perhaps you've experienced broken links. Now, when Tim berners lee wrote the code for his World Wide Web browser, there was a grand total of 26 tags in HTML. I know that we would refer to them as elements today, but that word wasn't being used back then. And now there are well over 100 elements in HTML. And the reason why the language has been able to expand so much is down to the way that web browsers today treat unknown elements. Ignore any opening and closing tags you don't recognize, and only render the text in between them.
1: So the parsing algorithm was brittle compared to modern day browsers and parsers. There was no DOM tree being built up. And indeed, the DOM didn't exist. Remember that the World Wide Web browser was effectively smushing together a word processor and network requests, and the styling method was mostly adding margins as the tags were being parsed. So Kimberly Blessing was digging through the original 7,500 lines of source code to the World Wide Web, and she found the code that could explain why we were seeing this junk. So in this case, where we're kind of feeding it the link tag and rel equals stylesheet, The World Wide Web parser says, OK, I've got an angle bracket. Cool, this looks like a tag. L, OK, It's cool, still a tag. Uh, I, right, I know what we're about to render. We're going to render a list element. And we feed it the letter N. And uh, the World Wide Web original parser kind of craps out, swallows those four characters, and just spits the rest back onto the screen. So that's why we were seeing k rel equals stylesheet or krel equals preconnect, and so on, across the top of the screen. So with that, we made the executive design decision to strip out any elements that were unknown to the original World Wide Web browser. So this meant removing uh, link, script, video, uh, image, since, of course, there were no images in the first web browser. So this is the first little cheat we've applied, so that the page will be more pleasing to you, our visitor to the emulator. Otherwise, you would be presented with a lot of scary junk. So now we have all the reference pieces we need to be able to replicate this browser. We have the machine running the original operating system, which gives us a sense of colors, fonts, and menus, and so on. We have the browser itself, how the windows behave, what are in the menus, what makes the, uh, u- the experience unique at that period of time. And importantly, we know how
0: it looks when we visit a URL. So off we went. Now, while Remy sets about recreating the functionality of the World Wide Web browser, Angela was recreating the user interface using CSS. Inputs, buttons, menus, all with the exact borders, highlights, and shadows used in the UI of the next operating system, including having a scroll bar on the left side of Windows. Meanwhile, the rest of us were putting together an explanatory website to give some backstory to what we were doing. I spent most of my time working on a a timeline showing 30 years before and 30 years after the original proposal for the World Wide Web. And the World Wide Web browser inherited fonts from the next step operating system. It mostly used Helvetica, and a font called Ulfs, created by Keith Ulfs. Helvetica is ubiquitous, but Ulfs was never seen outside of the Next system. Our teammates Mark and Brian were obsessed with accurately recreating the typography. We couldn't use modern fonts, which are vector-based. We needed pixeliness. So Mark and Brian took a screenshot of the Next machine's alphabet, with help from afar from font designer David Jonathan Ross, They traced each square pixel into a vector program and then exported that as a web font. So now we've got a web font that deliberately isn't anti-aliased. It's a vector format that recreates the look of a bitmap. Now, you put the pixely font together with the CSS interface elements, and you've got something that really looks like the old World Wide Web program. So this is the
1: final product of our work at CERN that week. It's a fully working World Wide Web emulator, giving a reasonably close experience of what it was like to surf the web 30 years ago. Now, this is entirely inside of a browser, and it was written using uh, React, React Draggable for the movable windows and the menus, React Hotkeys to replicate the operating system hotkeys inside of the browser. Uh, IDB Keyval for a little bit local storage, and parcel for the, bundle, for the bundling. Now, these tools weren't particularly chosen because they were the best tools for the job, but because I knew them well enough that I could get the work done in the short amount of time that we had. And we worked hard to replicate the look and feel as much as we could, including replicating the typos we found throughout the World Wide Web, an exercise in global information availability. So let's have a look
0: at what it actually looks like. So there's kind of an irony in this, in that it relies so heavily on JavaScript. I mean, there's nothing there other than JavaScript. Because, of course, the World Wide Web browser couldn't deal with JavaScript. JavaScript hadn't been invented yet. So the one URL that definitely wouldn't work in this emulator is the emulator itself. Which Jeremy was blaming me for.
1: This is what you see when you visit the the page for the uh, the World Wide Web browser for the first time, Um, and we can see you're welcomed by the universe of hypertext. Um, We've got these uh, menus over here that you can see you can kind of drag off and open up panels. I always thought this was kind of an ordering bug, but the operating system actually works like this. Um, And what we'll do is we'll go ahead and actually open uh, the frontiers website. So I go to document and then I. Open full document reference because the word URL didn't exist, Um, and I'm going to pop Frontiers in there, HTTPS. Yep, going through the proxy, Frontiers.nl, and there it is. So we've got the Frontiers website. Looks pretty good. Okay, one of my favourite kind of UI bits: this scroll bar on the left-hand side instead of the right. It's pretty cool, Um, and we can follow the links. Oops. We can follow the links. Um, And actually, one of my favorite features that that was in this original browser and and we replicated was this Navigate menu. So I've just opened the first link in the document. But I can click on Next and Next a bunch of times. And it will cycle through each one of the links that I kind of launched from and let me read all the pages uh, that the Frontiers site links to, which I really like. Um, And I can go backwards and forwards and so on. the one thing you might already notice is there's no URLs here. And in fact, to view source, it was considered a kind of a, a diagnostic option, and it was a uh, diagnose SGML. It's very, very tucked away. The reason for this is that URLs and the source HTML or SGML was con- considered ugly and potentially bad, a, a bad user experience. But there's one thing about navigating here that's
0: different. To open this link, I have to double click. So this first web browser, it's really just a prototype. And you can't really demonstrate the universality of the World Wide Web, because it only works on one operating system, the next operating system, which very few people have. So it was the second web browser ever that was especially commissioned to demonstrate universality. And that was the line mode browser, coded up by Nicola Pello at CERN. That, in many ways, was much more primitive than the World Wide Web browser. You couldn't click on links. It was all keyboard control. It's green text on a black screen, but it did demonstrate the idea that, oh, anybody could install this on just about any machine. And the whole idea of the World Wide Web is that anybody could use it regardless of their operating system, regardless of what kind of browser you're using. And you know, we got more browsers. There were later iterations of World Wide Web. It was renamed to Nexus, as we heard this morning. It got images. And then Mosaic came along. Mark Andreessen created this browser that had even more images and was really nice and quite easy to use. And, that's when the floodgates started to open, and Driesen went on to form Netscape, and the web really took off. You know, and famously, Bill Gates sent that memo around saying, we've been asleep at the wheel. We need to get on this web thing. And they create Internet Explorer. And then we have the browser wars between Netscape and, and Microsoft uh, bad times. And uh, you know, Netscape kind of morphed into uh, um, Firefox later, and, and Internet Explorer morphed into Edge. And other companies started releasing browsers Google released Chrome, and Apple released Safari. But all of these subsequent web browsers were missing something that was in this original browser. So the reason I have to double click on these
1: links is because when I do a single click, it actually places the cursor. So the cursor is blinking there in frontiers. And the reason I can place the cursor is is because I can edit the document. And I see Frontiers here is missing a heading. So uh, we want to welcome you all. Um, And we want to make that a heading. So let's style that as a heading. So the browser was meant to edit documents. Uh, Let's put a bit of text here as well. Great talks from Remy and Jeremy. Let's forget about everyone else. Um, Now, if I want to create a link, and go ahead and navigate to, let's go to Jeremy's site. Daxian.com. Daktio, and I'm going to go and do link mark all, which is a way of kind of copying the URL to that window. Go back to the Frontiers website, select Jeremy, and do uh, link to marked. So if I closed Jeremy's webpage, page, um, I can double click on Jeremy's name and it will open up his is website, and I can save this document as well. So I'm going to call it "Frontiers." Oh, "Frontiers." And let's um, let's do a hard reboot. So, in fact, just to show you it's in a the browser, there we go. It's in the browser, I'm not running. Next, uh, I come back to my machine a couple of days later. I'm like, ah, oh, the "Frontiers" uh, page. I'm going to go and open that again. Um, and it, it linked to that really handsome guy in the, the sprite shirt. Ah there we go. And yeah, so the links still work. And in fact, this documentation that you see uh, when the World Wide Web browser launched was written, styled and linked using the World Wide Web browser. The World Wide Web browser was for a web that you could read and write. But this didn't survive. It was a layer of complexity that couldn't be implemented in a, a standard way. Like the, the servers that existed out there would need to work out a way to kind of write to your servers and write to, eight, uh, to URLs. And the upcoming browsers wouldn't, would have to re-implement this same layer of complexity. So reducing the complexity increase the chance of
0: mass adoption. And in this case, simplicity wins. I think that's a pattern we see over and over again, not just the history of the web, but before the web, that simplicity wins. Like Ted Nelson, uh, he famously to this day, he thinks that the World Wide Web is weak sauce, because it didn't try to solve complex problems right out of the gate, like you know, handling micropayments. And as we saw, the hypertext community thought this one-way linking thing was, was ridiculous. You needed to do the complex two-way linking thing. But simplicity does win out. And unfortunately, that's why browsers ended up being just browsers. Uh, we kind of get some of the functionality back with things like wikis and, and content management systems and social media to a certain extent. But it, I think it's still a bit of a shame that you know, when I want to browse a web page, I'm using one piece of software, the browser. But when I want to make a web page, I'm using another piece of software or multiple pieces of software to get something onto the web. Uh, I feel like we lost something. So we head home
1: after a week of hacking, and then we're all invited back in March earlier this year for the Web at 30 event, which was taking place to celebrate the Web and also Sir Tim Berners-Lee. A few of us, Jeremy, Martin, and myself, went back to CERN for the first leg of the event. And there was even a video showing off our work that ran during the uh, conference. Jeremy and I even chased Tim Berners-Lee back to London at the Science Museum like a couple of obsessed Uh, web fanboys. It was a lot of fun. But it was the night before I got a message from Jean-Francois Groff, pictured here on the right. Uh, J.F. Groff worked with Tim Berners-Lee 30 years ago and created LibWWW, which was a precursor to LibCurl. The message read, sitting with Tim right now, he loves your browser. Crushed it. It was amazing that we were able to pull this off in just a week with just text editors and information that's freely available on the web. And it's mind-blowing how much we can do today and how far it can reach. And it all started on this Next Machine 30 years ago. What I really loved about this project was working with brilliantly old technology and digging around at the birth of browsers and the web. I wouldn't be stood here today if it weren't for the web. I wouldn't even know Jeremy if it weren't for the web. I wouldn't have a career if it weren't for the web. I loved seeing how old technology, the the original World Wide Web Browser, was still able to render my blog, because I put content first, delivered markup from the server, and the page rendered because HTML really is backward-compatible. HTML and HTTP, HTTP are just text, nothing terribly fancy. And dare I say it, kind of beautifully simple. And like we said, simplicity wins the day. It's the same simplicity that allows us to all have the same chance to have an equal voice on the web. And The web allows us to freely publish our thoughts and experiences. So we have to fight to protect that kind of a web. We've got to, keep, we've got to work to keep it simple.
0: When we returned to CERN for the 30th anniversary celebrations, uh, one of the other people there was the journalist Zeynep Tufekci. Uh, She was on a panel along with Tim Berners-Lee and Robert Caillou and Jean-François Groff and Lou Montulli. And at the end of the panel discussion, she was asked, what would you tell the next generation about how to use this wonderful tool? And she replied, If you have something wonderful, if you do not defend it, you will lose it. If you do not defend the magic and the things that make it wonderful, it's not just going to stay magical by itself. Defend the simplicity and resilience that's so central to the web. I don't know about you, but I often feel that just trying to make a web page has become far too complex, but this is complexity that we've chosen with our tools and our processes and our assumptions. We've buried the magic. The magic of linking web pages together. The magic of a working global hypertext system where nobody needs to ask permission to publish. Tim Berners-Lee prototyped the first web browser, but the subsequent World Wide Web wasn't created by any one person. It was created by everyone, and that is magical. I don't want the web to become a place where only an elite priesthood get to experience the magic of creation. So I am going to fight to defend the openness of the World Wide Web. This is for everyone, not just for everyone to use, it is for everyone to create. Thank you.
2: Fabulous. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. I think it would be rude of me to let you off the stage without a quick chat. It Should looks like one on of us lap? is sitting on the this floor. It's awkward. probably going to be me. Why don't, you, why don't you both take a seat and I will awkwardly perch like, like Jeremy's pet greyhound. Is this, is this something of a dream come true for me if I'm, if I'm strictly, strictly honest? You and me both. Yeah. Um... Well, wow, what a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's an incredible thing to be a part of, uh, like recreating that and digging under the covers of that kind of bizarre bit of software that uh, that we've, we kind of take for granted now. Um, Remy, you were kind of showing some of the like, the, the, the ways of using that we might not have expected and some of the interactions we might not have expected. I can't help feeling there were a number of skeletons that you might <laughs> have uncovered or gems along the way. Is there... Other than the scroll bar on the left, are there other good bits and bobs that we should know about?
1: Well, so one of the things that I... One of the little stories that I've discovered was um, uh, Jean-François Groff, uh, who did the WWW. He, um, he hacked CERN's Telnet... Was Telnet or FTP? Telnet, telnet interface. So that if you Telnet it into CERN, and you didn't have a username and account, you just go in anonymously, it would give you back the line mode browser. So people were able to use the web and browsers without having to install anything. Like, almost a kind of, like, we can use apps on our phones without having to install anything because of the web. And you could use a browser without having to install anything, which I think is an amazing way of just getting this software into yeah. lots of people's hands. I think
0: my, my favorite little Easter egg discovery and was actually in a comment, that, um, I think Angela found it in the source code, because the, so the version we had wasn't the very first version, it was a few oh. versions back. We'd, we'd take, we'd, we had Tim Berners-Lee's hard drive, we could look through it, and uh, I guess a, a year or two in, um, there was a comment on the port number that it would use by default. Now we all use port 80, right? But Initially, it was uh, some four-letter number, somewhere in that range where you're allowed to use whatever you want. But there was a comment saying they'd just got word from John Postel that the web was going to get port 80. Uh, Gopher was getting port 90. And I remember uh, Jean-Francois Groff saying, like, oh, that's when they knew they'd made it. Like, getting the blessing of of John Postel, (laughs) you got an official port number. But this... This four-digit one that it was using by default, it wasn't like when you're normally doing some local host thing, you pick something easy to remember, right? 8,000 or, you know, right. some four-digit combination. Yeah. This appeared to be four random numbers. Okay. And Jean-Francois Croft told us, no, those were the last four digits of Tim Berners-Lee's parents' phone number. Oh, amazing. <laughs> That's too good. That's
2: too good. I'll never choose a local port the same way again when I'm doing development. That's fantastic. Um, th- I was kind of curious as well. As well, sorry, that's sinking in. Uh, I was cu- curious as well, um, you mentioned the, the the design decision that almost happened for the two-way linking, uh, and like the reciprocal links being required. And link rot is a thing that we all encounter. What would you imagine would be the state of things now if that had been the route that we had gone down? How would that have helped or hindered things, do you think?
0: I think it would have hindered. I think the level of it would have raised the barrier to entry uh, and made it hard. Just like I said, things like micropayments, we could have tried to solve that at the start, but um, simplicity kept winning the day. What's the bare minimum necessary? And single-way links are problematic, as you say, Um, link rot, but barrier to entry is super low. So it... It explodes in popularity, and now we 're trying to solve these problems yeah. which I think is the better way around it's kind of
2: it's frightening to think how close we came to some you know there's so many happy accidents or or design decisions that were right on a knife edge uh, that all need to go the right way for us to end up where we are now
0: a lot of happy accidents
2: yeah it's amazing i was I'm kind of uh, thinking as well about the situation we 're in now and you know your your kind of message at the end there of like wanting to protect the web and of course, the environment is very different now because you know, we've entire like, generations and industries have grown up with the web existing and we take it for granted and we build on top of it and we build companies and businesses on top of it. Do you think the web could ever happen again? Do you think, do you think knowing what we know now, we would ever be able to do anything quite as phenomenal as the web again?
1: I don't think so. I think, like. You needed to be in that early stage for it to have the you know the spark to happen, yeah. right? The atoms to all come together at the right time. Whereas now we're we have this kind of high expectation of everything, and which is it, like it's just a, a collection of happy accidents. So you get to the point, like Jeremy's story of the past, like all these events had to happen first before. Tim Berners-Lee was like, oh, I'll just get a word processor and a network request, and now I'm famous. I th- it's probably more than
0: that, but. <laughs> I, I suspect that the web couldn't have happened anywhere other than CERN. Um, although, you know, you talk to people at CERN, they say it wasn't so much that they promoted, oh, yeah, work on the web. It was more like they tolerated it. But still, it's a place that is dedicated to pure science over profit. It's pretty unusual. As in, you know, most places would try and think, how can we monetize this? That was the danger with Gopher. You know, Gopher was, was way more popular than the mm-hmm. web, but then the University of St. Paul said, right, we're gonna start charging for this, and that was a big mistake. So I think maybe one of the biggest decisions in adoption for the web we didn't even mention, which was releasing it into the public domain, uh, CERN giving up any rights to right. patents or royalties. Yeah. Um, that matters, and that sort of environment, that CERN-like environment is pretty rare.
2: It's fascinating to hear. It's, so, it's wonderful to see like this kind of a project happen, and for you to go and pick under the covers and not uncover so much of this. Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. There's so many wonderful messages to take away. It's a fantastic way to finish the day, So, thank you both. A big round of applause, for you, please, for Remy Sharp, Jeremy Keith.